Kolobinaka, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suisuiki. Coming up... Everybody's trying to, you know, last-minute preparations. There's no school. Tropical Storm Bolevan by the Mariana Islands is on track to become a typhoon. Also... We must remember, with gratitude, all those who contributed to the development and modernization of our beloved Fiji. Fiji celebrates 53 years of independence. And later, a health researcher warns the high cost of living in New Zealand will impact Pacifica children's learning. Tropical Storm Bolevin is expected to pass between Rota and Tinian in the northern Mariana Islands on Wednesday evening and could possibly become a typhoon. A typhoon warning remains in effect for Rota, Tinian and Saipan, with a tropical storm warning and typhoon watch in place for Guam. The latest update says the storm's maximum sustained winds are 128 kilometres per hour maximum. Caleb Fotheringham has more. People in the northern Mariana Islands were busy this morning with last-minute typhoon preparations. RNZ CNMI correspondent Mark Rubago says the recent large typhoons have put people on edge. A lot of people are anxious. Some are even terrified because of their experiences in the past. Mr Rubago says the government have told people to have water and food supplies ready. People living on the coast have also been told to have an escape plan. Everybody's trying to, you know, last-minute preparations. There's no school. They activated shelters. And there's a price freeze that's been implemented. Residents of Saipan, Tinian and Rota have been told to prepare for a Category 2 typhoon, which would bring winds of 154 to 177 kilometres per hour if it eventuates. But Paul Stanko, senior meteorologist at the U.S. National Weather Service in Guam, says Bolaven has been intensifying slower than what was earlier predicted. He says it's likely the storm will only reach Category 1 strength as it passes through the Marianas, which will mean winds of 119 to 153 kilometres per hour. Tropical storm Bolaven has been intensifying slowly, which has been good news for us. We were worried if it would be rapidly intensifying. This morning, about 300 millimetres of rain is forecast for the Mariana Islands over the next 24 hours. Mr Stanko says people living in corrugated roof homes need to prepare the most for the storm, while people living in concrete homes should be fine. Meteorologist Landon Aidlett from the same weather service says the worst storm conditions will be avoided if the storm stays on track. The 7 o'clock forecast pass does show a passage between Rota and Tinian with those strongest typhoon force winds keeping offshore of both Rota and Tinian. This would be a best case scenario if this track and forecast holds over the next 12 hours. Another meteorologist, Brandon Aidlett, says big surf is forecast and there will be coastal inundation in parts of the CNMI. This is the big concern as the intensifying Bolavin approaches and passes near Tinian and Saipan just to the south. We could see those seas reaching up to 20 to 22 feet or so. So this is going to be very dangerous across the waters. This is going to result in increasing dangerous surf especially along the windward coast of the islands. The northern Mariana Islands declared Typhoon Condition 1 at 5am today local time. It means typhoon force winds of about 120 kilometres per hour or more are expected and damaging storm force winds of just over 60 kilometres per hour are expected within 12 hours of the announcement. 
public schools in the northern Mariana Islands are closed and shelters are open. Celebrations were held in Fiji as the Republic marks its 53rd year of independence. Civilian and military parade were held all over the country. Fina Funua has more. There was a jovial mood among the thousands of flag-waving Fijians who accompanied the Republic of Fiji Military Forces Band as they marched through the Suva CBD towards Albert Park for a flag-waving ceremony. The band, accompanied by decorated soldiers, marched through the grounds observed by their president, Ratu Katoni Vere. Fiji's elite were also in attendance, including Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka, It's a ritual held every morning of October 10th, the day Fiji became independent from the United Kingdom in 1970. A gun salute from three Hotwitzer field guns topped off the occasion. In Levuka, Fiji's old capital, a large public parade was also held. Levuka is home to the site where Fijian chiefs gathered to sign a deed of session to the United Kingdom in 1874. Fiji's president, Ratu Williame Katoni Vere, delivered a televised state address expressing his gratitude to the country's past generations. In a motivational speech, Ratu Katoni Vere outlined some of the challenges faced by the country. We are living in uncertain times as a nation, as we are part of a revolving global community with complex issues and escalating geopolitical rivalries that pose a threat to international peace and security in the Pacific and the world. Our resolve is always tested. In New Zealand, Fiji Language Week is officially underway, celebrating Fijian independence and raising awareness of the country's diversity, language, culture and history. A health and education researcher warns the rising costs of food in New Zealand will impact the academic future of Pacifica. The Pacific Islands Family Study Team at AUT University have analysed academic records of over 600 children whose parents are taking part in the research. The report's co-author, AUT Emeritus Professor Elaine Rush, told Lydia Lewis they found household food insecurity in the year preceding childbirth is associated with lower academic achievement at secondary school. We've known for a long time that food security or being able to eat the foods that you need to eat for optimal wellness is critical for growth and development, and in particular, the first 1,000 days of a child's life, because that's when they go from being a fertilized egg, egg and sperm together, to being an amazing Organism. In fact, by the time a child's born, after nine months of gestation, all the organs and structures of their body have been formed. It's just amazing. So in the Pacific Island Families Study, which started in the year 2000 with over 1,400 mothers who had babies at Middlemore Hospital, and either the mother or the father, or both, were identified with Pacific Island 
ethnicity. Uh, we have been following them since then. When the baby was six weeks old, that was the first time the mothers answered questions for the study, which is very extensive and has looked at all sorts of um, things about the family and the child's life. But one of the things that they were asked at that six-week interview in the year 2000 was about food security and, in particular, whether they had enough money or if food ran out in their household. Never, sometimes, or often. So when the children had passed through schooling, we decided that it was a good time to actually look at their academic achievement. And for the purposes of this study, we wanted to see if there was any effect of food insecurity during gestation. So with the permission of the youth and their families, we received the data about their NZ from the NZQA database about their NCEA achievements and the points that they got. And we were able to show and it was sad in a way, but expected that those children who were born into a food insecure household were less likely to achieve as well in their academic high school. But we do know from this analysis that the food insecurity consistently was associated with less academic achievement. What exactly is food insecurity and what were these families experiencing at the time? A lot of food insecurity has to do with money and the questions are around that. These are the questions that are used in the National Health Survey. They were also used in the Child Nutrition Survey back in 2002 and in the Adult Nutrition Survey in 2009. So they're consistent, uh, well-researched questions uh, but the questions like food runs out due to lack of money and the participant answers never sometimes often the variety of foods I am we are able to eat is limited by lack of money we rely on others to provide food and money for food we make use of special food grants or food banks I feel stressed because of not having enough money for food and I feel stressed because I can't provide the food I want for social occasions. And we eat less because of lack of money. But those are the questions that are asked. And that's how we measure the food insecurity of the household. And those aren't the only findings that have been found. Like you say, this is a longitudinal study over many years. What has been found previously? From when the um, youth were... 14 years old, we did an in-depth study of 100 of the girls and 100 of the boys, and we actually measured their body composition in, with great accuracy using a whole body scanner. And from that scan, we can actually measure the amount of skeletal muscle on the arms and legs. And that's where we found that boys born to food insecure Households had 2% more 
by body weight, less skeletal muscle on their arms and legs, and they actually had 5% more fat, total fat on their body. So that was another investigation that was published a couple of years ago. The same with about the girls' body mass index, which of course isn't as good at telling the um, muscle from the fat and body composition. And going back to the correlation with academic achievement, now that this has been pinpointed, what needs to be done or what can be done um, on a government level? Well, it's a whole of society problem and the solution lies with the whole of society. But government policies need to actually think about the food supply for New Zealand and for individuals going forward. We've got a crisis, the climate crisis. Uh, We've got the cost of living crisis. And this is going to impact on children being conceived now. As the demand for food banks increase, food insecurity increases, and particularly for vulnerable groups, such as those with disability and those who are not European, it seems it has more of an impact. But the thing is to have mothers well nourished in that first 1,000 days. So both for gestation, but also for breastfeeding or being able to afford formula so that their baby can receive the best start. Because without the best start in life, there is no going back. We're not that resilient. We have to do the best every day for our children. The museum exhibition in Sydney is shedding lights on the significance of eight high-profile visits by Pacific leaders and missionaries to Australia during the 19th century. The exhibition displays various items belonging to historical figures, such as Tonga's King George the I, Māori chief Hongihika, and Fiji's Ratu Dankumbao. It's all meant to highlight a period of history where some Pacific leaders were being acknowledged as indentant rulers. Co-curator Ruth Chulai says the visits drew massive crowds and dignitaries who were welcomed by Sydney's elites. Fina Fonua spoke with Ruth Chulai. Were there many Pacific Islanders moving through Australia during this time? As um... Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There are many Pacific Islanders moving through Sydney and also through the whole East Coast. And they travelled as seamen. They travelled as cook hands. They travelled as labour. So when we looked at the man- manifest of the that came and went over that period, sometimes the entry was, you know, it may be as simple as three men from Vavao or two men from Fiji, but they didn't actually specify their name or their place of origin. So that was part of the difficulty in identifying who we might select because they were collectively registered under a very generic term. When looking at some of these visits, there's political motivations. For example, Hongi Hika um, was in Sydney to forge alliances, and you had King the I to discuss affairs of the states. And you have Ratu Thakumbao, who's there after Fiji's formal session to Britain. Could you expand on this? So if you think back to the 1700s, 1800s up until 1901, 
Sydney was the main port of administration, connection to the UK, and it was the nearest port of a foreign government. And a lot of the missionaries did make Sydney their headquarters. And so the natural attraction to power would have drawn the Indigenous people to Sydney, and that would have included Sakambar, King George and Hongihika to go to Sydney to see what they could acquire or what they could learn from foreign governments in terms of agriculture, in terms of civil society, in terms of trade. Sydney was that focal point of power in the Pacific. According to one of your curators, Jude Phillip, the interaction between European Australians and visiting Pacific Islanders in the early 1800s, mid-1800s, was generally friendly, and you had Australian politicians and governors welcoming these Pacific Island dignitaries, treating them on an equal standing. It contrasts with Australia's dark history of you know, the the white Australia policy and... Yes. Was Australia a more inclusive society during the 1800s before it became a federation? I think that Sydney, being the main point of, of interest, was uh, fairly relaxed. It was... I mean, it grew out of commercial and administrative interests. I mean, there's newspaper articles about King George's visit where thousands of people reportedly followed him in the street because they were just curious. Sakambar was the same. You know, he'd dress up in his tarpa regalia and, and people would be just so keen to see him, um, something out of the ordinary, and a very stately man from the Pacific. Um, everybody wanted to see and they were curious. And also they knew that the Pacific Islands were, you know, being unified in, in certain places. And so it was a place and and time of discovery and finding your place in the world. And I think when the, you know, the white Australia policy came into place, I think that was where the, the, the turning point is or was. And that also impacted on the blackbirding trade and also the theft of people from Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, New Caledonia and PNG. Some made it home. And some never made it home, and some remained and created new bloodlines in Australia. You said that too often in Papua New Guinea, we were taught that colonial Europeans were the explorers. What did you mean by that? All my life I've been brought up thinking that the Western world was the one that was exploring us. And once I started working on this expedition, I realised that we were also exploring them. We would hop on ships and just sail off on the horizon. Wherever that boat was going, we wanted to go too. We wanted to see what was happening beyond our horizon. So you have a discovery. I think as as a people, we're natural discoverers, we're natural adventurers. We've got a whole ocean that we use to navigate on. And so we were also interested in what these traders and these explorers were bringing and what benefit we could take back to our community. So while they were exploring us, we were also exploring them. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, to Fasui Fua.